Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. It was 1941, and I was eight years old. Outside, the oncoming night was silent and still. I helped my five-year-old sister out of the car and looked up at a succession of stone monoliths, standing like giant sentries. The overgrown ruins looked monstrous and menacing, as the twilight shadows groped towards us, wearing the visages of men. The wind tumbling over the tallest towers seemed to be the whispering of ghosts from centuries past. I wondered what secrets lay hidden in the darkness. My sister crouched behind me, as if she would rather not see. We had come to the ruins of Great Zimbabwe, once a city in the southeastern hills of Zimbabwe near Lake Mutirikwe and the town of Mazvingo. It was the capital of the Kingdom of Zimbabwe during the country's late Iron Age, the largest of many hundreds of smaller ruins, now known as Zimbabwe's, spread across what was then Rhodesia's highveld. We had arrived as the sun was setting, because my mother was fascinated by the ancient world. My father led the way. The ruins stretched for miles, the hills crowned by what had once been small towers. But here, in the heart of the ancient city, there was only one great edifice, a fortress built from stones of magnificent size. We passed along overgrown passages between tumble-down walls, through a great enclosure where the air was curiously still. Archaeologists and anthropologists would spend their careers debating what kind of civilization had been centred on these ruins. They would argue whether it was the seat of the Gokomere people, the ancestors of Zimbabwe's Shona, or whether it belonged to the tribes who would one day call themselves the Lemba or Venda. Some reckon the city was between 500 and 1,000 years old, and that war, famine, pestilence or natural disaster had befallen its people and laid the city to waste. Nothing was certain. Those words are taken from Wilbur Smith's autobiography on Leopard Rock and they concern the subject of this week's episode, which is Great Zimbabwe. And we're delighted and privileged to be joined by Joost Fontaine, Professor of Anthropology at Johannesburg University and author of The Silence of Great Zimbabwe, who is, as you will gather, a leading expert, indeed possibly the leading expert on the Great Zimbabwe. So Joost, what actually got you interested in Great Zimbabwe in the first place? Well, I, I was a student and I was working in northern Zimbabwe. I had a few months in Zimbabwe and I started traveling around and I found myself at Great Zimbabwe and I camped at the site and it was amazing. Uh, I was all inspired by the place. And then very soon I met people who lived around it and I went to stay with them. Uh, we kept contact. Uh, I was there maybe for five days or so originally. And then I came back as a student doing a research project in 97 I kept contact with the people who lived nearby. They were dancing in an Ambira group there. Um, and that's a family I'm still very much in contact with. And I go to visit them often. And I stayed with them throughout my PhD and my postdoctoral research. So and I've been in and around that part of Zimbabwe. I spent 20 years, at least, working there. So, so in a way, your, your immediate first impression 
was not dissimilar to that of the schoolboy Wilbur Smith. I mean, it's like this just was an extraordinary place that that imprinted itself upon you. I think that's fair. I mean, even in my book, I think that's an experience an awful lot of people have. If you look at sure. descriptions from Richard Nicken and Hall, and I think, I mean, and even Karl Marx, some of those descriptions. I mean, it is an awe-inspiring place, and part of the reason it's awe-inspiring is also because you know you the past envelopes you and 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 this if we're talking about universal experiences this is also you know why do people think it's a sacred site for the same reason right it's a, that's a shared experience i think yes yes exactly yeah, yeah brilliant to start off with if it is possible to add to those words just give the listener who may not know very much about great zimbabwe after all the country itself has been cut off for large swathes of the past 50 or 60 years what exactly is it? Well, Great Zimbabwe is, I mean, it's no longer known as ruins, but it's a collection of ruins of a medieval city, um, which, I mean, there are debates about when it existed, but when it thrived is conventionally known as somewhere between the 11th and the 15th centuries. Although recent debates argue that it's actually been continually occupied from around that time till, till till the 20th century, actually, and that's an ongoing debate. Um, it's Great Zimbabwe is interesting not only because it's a magnificent place, and, and any, anybody who's ever been there will, will recognize that, and I think the description read to us captures some of that. Uh, but it's also amazing because it's a brilliant example of African achievement, and it's amazing because it captures within its historiography the very complex politics about the past, politics of the past, which uh, was provoked during the colonial period and continues in the post-colonial period. So for all of those reasons, it's an amazing place to go to and, and definitely worth visiting. Um, and it occupies a very specific and important place in the archaeology, in the world archaeology and in African archaeology because it's an, an amazing place and because it's representative of uh, an amazing series of African achievements during the medieval period, but also because it was imbibed in this politics of, of, of the past. And, and of course, it's actually so central that it actually gives its name to the country of Zimbabwe, um, which had formerly been the colony of Rhodesia. Yeah, quite. And, and, and actually, when I was doing the research on that book, I kind of followed that through a little bit. Uh, and... Uh, I always wondered about how that emerged, and it really emerged during the early African nationalist period in the movement from the National Democratic Party to the Zimbabwe African People's Union, when I think it was Mawema um, who said, let's call it Zimbabwe, and everybody agreed. And I've even spoken to uh, quite well-known cultural activists from Matabeliland like Kant Mashlanger, who I think died away, died last year. I remember speaking to him in the late 90s about this and saying, you know, was this a problem ever for in Matabeliland, given the ongoing tensions between uh, Matabeli communities and Shona communities? And actually his response was telling. He said, no, it was never a problem. We were happy to rally, rally around Great Zimbabwe as a name for the new independent country. What does the word Zimbabwe actually mean? It comes from two words, Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe. Zimba is a plural for house, so houses, and za is the prefix of, and mabwe is stones. So it's actually three words. It's two words, but there's a prefix. So houses of stone. And the 
being built of stone is really one of the most significant things about it in terms of why uh, we get so interested in it. And I think for for listeners who who aren't familiar with it, I mean, the scale of the thing rivals, you know, anything that we, of the kind of great megalithic structures. I think the walls get to eleven meters high at their tallest point, six meters wide, something like a million bricks used in one wall, and. Uh, there's various enclosures, there's passageways, there's a giant tower, which I think is actually just a, a solid tower, isn't it? There's nothing, it's not hollow. Yeah. Um, no. And so, it, it, and all made from car, as I understand it, stone that has been cut into blocks uh, and then joined together without any kind of cement or mortar. Yeah, no, no, that is correct. And it is impressive. Although one could argue that this kind of impressive monumentality is itself part of the problem of Great Zimbabwe because it's distracted attention uh, from other aspects of the site and has also led to a kind of whole host of these kind of fanciful theories. Um, and, yeah. and there is a more recent scholar, as a scholar at the moment, I mean, Zimbabwean archaeology is very developed and it's led by black Zimbabweans. Uh, and, and it's become a long way, even since I wrote this book in the last 20 years. And there's a book, by someone called Chadwick Tirukuri, which came out two years ago, who is much more of a scholar on Great Zimbabwe than I am, by the way. It was very kind of you to describe me as the eminent scholar on Great Zimbabwe, but really I'm not. But here's one of his points, Chadwick Tirukuri's points, is uh, that research over the last two decades, much of it led by him and by others, has been looking at the areas beyond the stone walls. And once you start looking beyond the stone walls, you realize that actually a lot of the theories mm. around Great Zimbabwe really missed something. They missed the continuous occupation of the site. They missed the way in which the, the, the people who live there it, during its prime, so to speak, have their social organization and so on. So in a sense, while the stoneness of it, the monumentality of Great Zimbabwe is what attracts attention towards it, it's also a bit of a curse because it's what's kind of enabled all these fanciful theories to emerge. So it's, it's a two-edged sword, really. In the, in the colonial period, as you were saying, it was assumed that there being, people thought, no other evidence of these monumental structures in, in, in sub-Saharan Africa, that therefore they must have been built by, by people who are known to have had that kind of technology, i.e. white people, Phoenicians, as Middle Eastern people, non-Africans. So... The question, I guess, comes, how was it that that this, this civilization, and Zimbabwe, after all, is the center of an enormous trading network, which we can get into, and an enormous empire covering great swathes of Africa with many other stone constructions. And I take your point about needing to think about the structures which are not stone, but it clearly was a very, very important city in a very organized society with advanced technologies, transport, trading links as far away as China. How did, how did that culture evolve and what happened to it? That's a huge question. I know that's about three books worth in itself. but Yeah, it is a huge question. And I mean... But it's kind of the, it's the question, isn't it? Because that's the thing which skeptics are, are, have, have sort of held up as, well, it can't possibly be done by local people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, that whole, we need to understand all of those kind of crazy ancient origins, foreign origins theories for what they are, which is part of a colonial process of making sense of 
what they find there in order to make room for white colonial settlement. And if you don't approach it from that way, you'll never make sense of those ancient foreign origins theories. That's what they were about. Um, sure. It's not really true to say that Great Zimbabwe is unique. I mean, there are more than 200 similar sites across the region. Great Zimbabwe is also not the first. And one of the things of big developments over the last few de uh, decades has been the amount of research that's been done in northern South Africa, Mapungugwe, which now is widely recognized as predating Great Zimbabwe. So Great Zimbabwe wasn't the first, nor was it the last. So there are also, you know, very famously, the other World Heritage Site, you know, the other Zimbabwe ruin, that's a World Heritage Site, Kami ruins in, in Bulawayo, probably overlapped and coexisted with great with great zimbabwe at its prime the state there if you like uh and and at the same time there are also ruins in in parts of uh botswana in areas of mozambique so it, it's not that unique in that sense uh and it's not uh, what i would also say and this is kind of important and telling um archaeologists in the past tend to look they look at material they look at pottery and so then they identify what they call culture areas or cultures, which is a slightly different way of using that notion of culture than, say, an anthropologist might use, and is also certainly different to how the word culture might be used in popular imagination. And when you put all that together, what you get is this, this idea that, well, there is a monument, so there must be a group of people with a particular political organization, with a particular bunch of techniques and beliefs and language and so on. And that if you then have another stone wall thing that looks a little bit different, that must be a different group of people with a different technology, with a different politics. It, I don't think it really works like that. I think culture is more often applied retrospectively on people, right? So technologies move, languages are shared, new ideas come in, different political organizations arise and they fall. And there are continuities across all those changes and the idea that there has to be, you know, this is a type of pottery, so this is a particular group of people. I mean, that's been discredited in archaeology, but it still has this kind of prominence in popular discourse, which is incredibly problematic. We have to recognize that identities are fluid, which is why questions like, you know, the kind of concerns that preoccupied um, antiquarians and early archaeologists in Zimbabwe around origins is, is kind of the very problem itself is dated to a particular way of understanding how change happens. But, but there's still the, I mean, in the same way that one looks at the pyramids and you think, to this day, how do you build something of a, a perfect series of, of triangles which meet at a perfect point, hundreds of feet in the air? And you can't help but wonder about how it was done and who did it and what their lives were like and what their culture was like. The same, and if you, if you, as you say, if you see not just Zimbabwe, but the, the, the enormous you know, trading posts and uh, sort of halfway houses along the way between there and the coast and goodness knows what else, it's only a human instinct to think, well, gosh, who were the people who did this amazing? It's good to Machu Picchu. You wonder about the Incas, you know, if you go to the Yucatan Peninsula, you might worry about the mayor or whoever. How, how, I mean, who were these people? How did they do it? And how was their society organized in such a way? And they're mining gold. I mean, the gold is the foundation of all this, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's the 
it's the, it's the, it's the medium of exchange. So it's the economic basis for their for their prosperity. So I mean, how how does all that happen? Right. I mean, I, I think there are different questions there. I mean, the question of how all that happens is a different question to who these people are. Right. And well, well it's, it's, look at Stonehenge, and you think, gosh, how the hell did they get the stones there? And who are the people who got them there? I mean, that's. But I, I think I mean just... this is the key point, really, is that the the question how does this happen and who does it are not the same question. No. Right? Because how those people identified themselves in the past is, is lost to us. We don't know that. Right. Right? And But the, the question of how does that come about, how is it that for historical reasons enough people organize around a particular kind of political organization so that there is surplus labor to do the kind of work that you're talking about, and why is there a need for this? Yeah. You could also ask. I mean, why? I mean, if you didn't need to build Stonehenge or Great Zimbabwe, you probably wouldn't, right? Sure. Because it's it's hugely expensive. So it's the how and 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 is 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 infinitely fascinating. But the who I think betrays are exactly the kind of things I was talking about earlier about our obsession with identity, with categorization. These are concerns that are very late twentieth century kind of concerns. Oh, I they're not con you know. Come on, the ancient cultures were extremely conscious of their own identities. It mattered a great deal to Romans that they were Roman and to Athenians that they were Athenian and to Egyptians that they were Egyptian. I mean, their their, their cultural identities are very clearly pronounced, Persian Empire. But... There's a really interesting book by uh, that came out last year by um, two an anthropologists and archaeologists. It's, it's a little bit off topic here. It's called The Dawn of Everything. By David Graeber. Oh yes, he wrote. I've heard. I've heard about. Yeah, that. it's definitely yeah. worth looking at. And and he takes on some of these very big questions. And one of the things he talks about is about how it's often in context of say a political historical antagonism between different communities that one group will identify itself and create cultural manifestations that are deliberately opposed to the one opposite. Sure. So that, in other words, the need to constitute. A specific identity in a particular is always already politically generated. Yeah, it doesn't exist before the politics of of having to introduce a kind of difference, right? No. It's, it's the Third Reich. I mean, you know, it's happening. It happens. It happens in, in within living memory. Yeah, yeah, no, no, for sure. So, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, so for me, the question of origins and the question of who built Great Zimbabwe, it really is more interesting for what it tells us about the people asking the questions than what it tells us about Great Zimbabwe. And I think that's a really important point. Okay. So whoever these people were, how did they build Great Zimbabwe? And why? You're asking your very good question. Why Why did they need to, or why were they able to? What was the, What happened? What was the process? Do we know, how much do we know about the process of that? Well, the, this is, you know, why Great Zimbabwe doesn't disappoint because the questions never never really get answered, right? Um, you know, <laughs> the worst thing for an academic is, is is if something is resolved, right? We don't actually want to resolve the answers <laughs> be, because then there'd be nothing more to talk about. And I think the point is is that by reframing the questions, we start to think about this differently. So um, if we say, for example, think, right, all right, so the previous idea that there was this kind of flourishing civilization for so many hundred years and then it collapses in some kind of catastrophic disaster where if that if those ideas are really problematic and if we can show archaeologically that there has been this continuing occupation of the site a waxing and waning if you like 
And we also know then that if we then think about historically from oral history and from other sources, Portuguese records, Arab records, and so on, that there have been a series of kind of political centers. But also in between those moments where there are political centers, there continue to be different kinds of social organization. When we put all that together, then the, the, the really interesting question becomes exactly why did they at this moment feel it was important to do this huge material constructions, all of these amazing technologies that they were using and developing. Why, why did they invest in that? And why did they not invest in this later? Sure. Yeah. And I guess t- t- taking your point that, that the, these are never really answered, but in, are there theories around that or kind of plausible ideas that people have put forward? Well, I, I think some of the really, there is some really interesting work going on now in the last 20 years. I mean, when I wrote that book, I was kind of frustrated that no one had written this book already, right? It seemed to me that this was a book that should have been read, written three decades before. It's so obvious. You know? If you want to know about Great Zimbabwe, why not talk to the people who live around it? I mean, it's kind of, it's like, and take them seriously and not just dismiss them. Um, but since then, Zimbabwean archaeologists have been doing loads of interesting work. So there's some really amazing pre, pre-colonial work being done now by a, a colleague of mine, Gerald Mazarire, who talks a lot about, say, how political organization might have worked in the pre-colonial period, particularly in the 19th century. Um, and there's, there's an old argument. In, in African history, which is that, you know, during, there was, before the colonial period, the wealth and political organization tend to be centered around a wealth in people. The land was empty, there was plenty of land, and so controlling politics was all about controlling people. And then colonialism comes and, and people take the land and there's a cadastralization and others mapping and a fixing of borders, and suddenly it's all about territory. And this is an old argument in African history. And what he does, working exactly in the same part of Zimbabwe, actually, and looking at pre-colonial yep. work, and he, he has some really interesting methodologies uh, to, to do oral history, historical work. He says, well, actually, it's kind of both. It's not just to move people to territory, but actually territory is orientated differently. Territory is orientated, orientated sorry, not around boundaries, but rather around centers of influence. And that these past centers of influence still exist, but now are materialized in the landscape in terms of sacred sites, in terms of burial grounds, and so on. So then you can imagine a whole landscape where you have different fiefdoms, different local leaders who are often related to each other, occupying central centers of power, often ritual centers, but also obviously controlling politics and trade and and so on. And the, the, in, through time, these centers become sacred sites and sacred mappers and, and burial grounds, right? And if you then look at the longer prehistory, there are certain moments where these small vassals are connected and form a larger consortium, like the Rojwi Empire. And then there are other moments when they really split off. And if you look through the long history, there's a kind of waxing and waning of this centralization of authority. Now, th- this is a very convincing kind of a story that I think allows us to project backwards, which is always problematic and something we have to be very careful about, but also accounts for why, for example, one of the big myths in, in Zimbabwe is that, you know, the Rojri built Great Zimbabwe. Well, it's, it's, it's not really clear that they did. And who are the Rojri anyway? Well, the Rojri turn out to be... Uh, yeah, I was, I was hoping you were going to tell us that because uh, I'm not, not familiar with their work. Okay, so the, the Rojri, I mean, there's this big idea in, and, and in fact, when you're doing research in 
in Zimbabwe, if you say talk to people, so who built Great Zimbabwe? A lot of people will say the Rojri. Now, the Rojri was a, a political organization that was quite prominent right into the 19th century. So it's fairly recent, which means that there's still quite fresh memories and oral histories. And some people talk about the last Rojri uh, polity actually being sacked and, and collapsed by the Nguni invasions in the belly just before British colonialism. Um, but actually, so the Rojri probably were not around in the, when Great Zimbabwe was originally built, but or let's put it a different way. The idea of a class, a ruling class of Rojri called the Rojri certainly wasn't around in the 1100s, right? Because the people might have been, but the people, you know, we have to kind of break the idea that there are kind of genetic links and this is a group of people. There are always people there, but the idea of the Rojri as a political class emerges much later. Now, this political class sent out emissaries and had connections all over in these different sites. So at certain moments, the Rojri come together as, as a kind of a state through these different vassals. But in, in other moments, those Rojri are still there. And this is one of the reasons why the old kind of very romanticized idea that, you know, ethnicity can be mapped to geography. So in this part of the country, we have people of this ethnicity, this part, we have that ethnicity. That, I mean, most of that's a colonial invention and missionary invention anyway. But the roles we have always defied that because they appear everywhere, right? So there are people, and, and how we see that is through totems. They're kind of like a global elite, as it were, in African. I mean, like people talk nowadays about the global elite. Are they the kind of, are they the class? I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's basically it. And, and a lot of it happens through totems, right? So they have the totem moil. So a lot of this really interesting new work on pre-colonial history happens through looking at totems, looking at lineage histories, looking at oral histories, and looking at them with a critical eye and, and unpacking them. And this is what my colleague, Gerald Mazarire, is, is really adept at. He's very good at it. But, but there clearly was, I mean, um, you, were the cons you were the consultant on the, um, on the documentary series, uh, or the episode of the Lost Kingdoms of Africa BBC series, and, and the one on Great Zimbabwe. And, and that made it plain that Great Zimbabwe was at the center of a trading network which went from Zimbabwe via a series of kind of posts along the way to the East African coast and the island of uh, Kilwa Kisiwani. And from there, the trade extended to and from um, the Arabian Peninsula, India, as far as China, and, and goods came back and the, the, what was going out was gold, principally, and what was coming back in were all sorts of trading goods, which are now which were found in Zimbabwe. So there were Chinese artifacts or, or Arabian coin, uh, coins, Arab coins. So the other thing that was kind of fa fascinating me was just how the gold was found, how it was extracted, and how it was transported, 1,500 kilometers, I think the distance is, across Africa. I mean that's just an astonishing feat of of both mining and transport. Do we know? Do we know though how? Do we know how that process occurred? I mean, is, is there any evidence? From, are there mining? I mean, I know there are mining sites across Zimbabwe, ancient mining sites, but is, are there mining sites within the Great Zimbabwe area itself? Do we know where they got their gold? It's a good question, actually, and there is there there are some mining seams not that far away, but they're not that many. Most of the mining areas are actually further away, you know, so, and, and it's interesting because in, in the last 20 years with the collapsing economy, you get a lot more informal miners and they do exactly what 
the Rhodesian settlers yeah. also did, which is look at the old mine workings, right? So everybody is following on the previous mine workings, mm. right? There's a, there's a line in The Sunbird where he says the reason there aren't many sure. sort of uh, archaeological mines is because new you know, modern miners find the old ones and go and dig a bit deeper. And so they sort of get messed up from a sort of historical record point of view. Is that what you're describing? Yeah, I, I clocked that. I mean, I, I read the book, I read that bit that I thought was actually quite, really quite an interesting observation because that is true. Mm. And the early antiquarians caused, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, tra- tra- a tragedy, really. It's a travesty how much mm. destruction they cause. But I, I think we should, I mean, a couple points here. One of the things is that it's not, trade was obviously enormously important, but I don't think it was the only story. And we, given that this was a, you know, we can probably agree that this place flourished as a political center for several hundred years. Probably there were different things going on. So other arguments have been put forward that it's to do with the control of the cattle herds. The great Zimbabwe's location between the high veld and the low veld was really important. Um, that's one of the other arguments, and that probably is true. Another argument that comes out of Shadrick Chirigiri's recent book, which I found really interesting, is that although a lot of attention has been focused on the trade with China and Ming pottery was found, at Great Zimbabwe, and there were Arab things found there. Actually, the vast, in terms of numerical quality, quantity, most of the trade goods found at Great Zimbabwe were from Central Africa and the rest of the region, and that hasn't been discussed enough. And I'm particularly thinking here of copper ignots and so on. I- ingots, I, I'm not sure, I'm never sure if I said that correctly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and I think that's a really interesting argument. But, I mean, what I would say is, why are we surprised that there's been centuries of trade from across the African continent and the rest of the world. Why is that surprising? It doesn't surprise me at all. Um, why, why is it surprising that the Chinese find, you know, they've been, Chinese people have been digging up a Chinese wreck off the Swahili coast. That's, that is very, very old. Why is this surprising? The world's always, people have always moved. There's always been trade. Well, the, the, the historical answer is that if you look at history from Western eyes, it took the, the Western countries, the kind of last people to arrive in sub-Saharan Africa. So let's just look at that in that case, follow up the sense of of this place as a kind of node for or, or entrepot for, for trade that is coming from the west and north, other parts of Africa, and also from the east. How, how connected were sub-Saharan African communities, kingdoms, whatever you want to call them, with, with the, the vast Asian trade network, which of course predates Western European trade by millennia. I mean, to what extent had they always been part of that? I mean, because we've also talked in, um, in our recent podcasts about a number of Wilbur Smith's Egyptian books, ancient Egyptian books, and one is conscious of the fact that 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 the Egyptians were, tra- were trading and mining and getting stuff deep down into into what is now Somal- uh, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia. Um, but if you look at the African uh, culture, how how connected had they always been with with other parts of the world? Well, I I mean I'm not an expert on this, but I would say very. And the people right. where I, if someone said to me, look into this, where would I start looking into this? I would start looking into a lot of work that's been done on glass beads, right? Uh, and, and you know and and I think that would point to the way in which, you know, this so-called dark 
inhospitable continent has actually always been connected with the wider world. I mean, I think the human condition is one of mobility. Right. Uh, and it always has been. And that actually this idea of kind of static people emerging organically with the soil is a fairly recent idea that probably emerges in 19th century nationalism and is now very strong in terms both in Zimbabwe, for example, when you have a politics of belonging that I've written about quite a lot, but also obviously in immigration debates around the world. This whole idea that people belong somewhere. No, people people belong on Earth. People have always been moving. And that we should really start from the premise that human mobility is a basic principle of humanness. I mean, there, there were gigantic migrations within Africa, right? I mean, of, of, of peoples. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. And I mean, and, and the, you know, the Vikings, for example, long before any Western people had actually gone to China, had links via Byzantium, which meant that, that you find Chinese artifacts in Viking tombs in Scandinavia or even Great Britain. I mean, so the, sure. this connectivity is there. But yeah. I, I mean, it also gets to a sense of a kind of, I don't know, like a, a deeper vision of African, which is, I guess, what the series was about, was that actually there are cultures and kingdoms and cities and buildings and all the things which people don't associate with pre-colonial Africa in Africa for centuries, long before Livingston and Stanley kind of wandered across the ground. And, and of you course. Know, I mean, I, I think the, the question that demands answering is why did people ever assume otherwise? Because, of course, that's the case. Well, isn't, isn't, it, isn't it that the cultures did not, by the time of, say, the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, those cultures did not have an embodiment or uh, which, as it were, conformed to a post-Renaissance, post-Enlightenment idea of what a, a quote-unquote civilized society looked like, what it built, what it thought, what it wrote, how it got from point A to point B. Because there are assumptions in what we were looking, what people were looking for, and they didn't find that, then they come up with all these other problematic associations, which, you know, I mean, let's not, I don't think we should tiptoe around this, right? The idea that the African continent was empty is an idea that made room for colonials. This is well documented. Um, I'd like to ask about the, um, the sort of the, the the long-term inhabitation of Zimbabwe, because you said that there's recent work that says it's been sort of continuously inhabited um, into, I think you said the 20th century even. Um, and um, of course, from a, from a Western point of view, it's discovered, uh, inverted quotes, in 1871 by a German expedition. Um, and I get, I've got, I was really intrigued, I was reading an account of that, and it said that um, their, their African bearers, as they were called, um when they when they got there they actually stopped and had to do a kind of um ritual kind of salute before they would enter it so even clearly they knew perfectly well you know as you say sort of center of power and of um of sort of spiritual power um so what is it in 1871 when when the the europeans um rock up and and, and find it uh, what's the state of it then? What, what, I mean, is it like kind of Hiram Bingham hacking it out of the jungle with Machu Picchu or um, Schliemann, you know, excavating through umpteen layers of Troy or is it is it just there? It's a good question and it's an interesting question. Um, I mean, one of the things that I found just as a preamble to answering that question is that Karl Marx was kind of looking for them, right? Right. 
he had already there was already rumors of this. There were a lot of you know a lot of colonial adventurism was driven by these rumors of of kind of ancient mm. civilizations and so on. And Prester John, for example, and there were accounts in Portuguese records. Um, uh, you know, there were secondhand accounts though from Arab traders of this thing at Zimbabwe. So he was looking for it, and he already had this idea of the Queen of Sheba and all of that nonsense was already. Yeah, and, and yeah, they're, they're looking for Ofer. The, and, and so on and so forth. So these kind of ideas preceded his discovery. Uh, mm. Discovery in a heavy commerce, <laughs> yeah. of course. Um, and you're right. I mean, a lot of interesting work is exactly re-examining those early traveler tales and, and kind of looking at them with a critical eye. And the point that you raise about, well, you know, his African servants, people you working with him, you know, having to do these kind of ritual processes before they entered suggest that you know they were pretty aware of, of what was going on there already looking at some of the early photos and i found this quite interesting when i was working in archives i mean the landscape did look quite different when it was oh, really? discovered well within say the great enclosure the imbahuhu or the elliptical temple as the antiquarians called it it was very overgrown Right. Also, at the hill complex, I think it was very overgrown. But the broader landscape was actually some, it depends a little bit on what angle you're looking at. And, and historical, you know, landscape archaeologists will probably be able to give you a better account. But it, in some ways, it appears like some of the area outside of that was, there was much less trees than there are now. Is that because it was being, has been cultivated or? Well, and or, I suspect or... grazed. Um, right. Yeah. But mm. uh, of course, then when the Antiquarians come, they, they, they really destroyed that place, right? I mean, they, they really did. Um, and, it, and it's quite horrific, actually, what, what was done. Um, Richard Nicklin Hall, in his account of, of a couple of years he spent there, or, or whatever it was, the Theodore Bent and then Richard Nicklin Hall, you know, talk about, you know, they're looking for the, the occupation level of the, the so-called ancients, and they never find them. And in the process, they just destroyed this huge amount of archaeology. Um, both in the on the hill complex, and you can see it as a massive hole where they've just kind of shoved all this stuff off a cliff, but also later in the uh, great enclosure, and, and because they're looking for this occupation level of the ancients, which they never find. And I think there, I think it's Theodore Bent in his account. He even talks about this. He he kind of he talks about how one day he's kind of at his campsite and he's getting frustrated because he can't find any evidence of these ancients, a little bit like the character in the sunbird who also gets frustrated by this, right? The, yeah. You know, except that in the, the sunbird, yeah. the character finds this, and in reality, it never existed. It, it was never there. And, and there are moments when Theodore Bent kind of goes, oh, I don't know, I think maybe these are just locals, or local, you know, maybe this was built by Africans after all. But then the next day, he kind of has a bit more coffee or drinks some booze, and, and he's kind of reinvigorated to try and find these ancients that never existed. It's extraordinary, really. Wow. So, 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 so the legend is actually um, so deeply ingrained that they, they can't see the evidence of their own eyes, and they're actually they're yeah. just in, in, they 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 they're convinced there must be this this sort of lost civilization buried buried under the ruins. Yeah, and, and, and so they... yeah, no, and that deep conviction continues, right? It continues right through mm. Uh, mm. the Rhodesian period to the point where, in the early seventies, um, in the context of the war. The Rhodesian internal security get involved, and they're like censoring archaeologists and people like Peter Garlic have to leave the country, and um, 
I mean, it's 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 really quite grim, really. It, mm. You know, Terence Ranger, the late Terence Ranger, described it as an article of faith, right? So, and that's really important. And in fact, we can talk a little bit about this because when I, I did read the Sunbird, and it it struck me that this, rather than being an historical novel, it's actually an historical artifact. Well, it's a historical fantasy, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a, it's. I mean, I think the two things I would say is first, Johan has to bear in mind it was written more than fifty years ago, and secondly. It's fiction. Yes. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It is. Yeah. I mean, the other interesting thing, he, he described um, Sunbird as a historical artifact. And I, I, this, in, in some ways, it, it absolutely is because it was, it was created now in a historical period 50 years ago. Um, what's interesting is that um, Wilbur comes back to Great Zimbabwe uh, nine or 10 years later in um, Falcon Flies. Um, which then is, which, which is interesting, of course, because 71 is, we're in the middle of the struggle for Zimbabwean independence. 80, they actually become independent. Zimbabwe becomes independent. Um, and Wilbur starts this, I think it's a quartet of novels in the end, um, sort of charting um, Zimbabwean history from the sort of Western exploration phase through through to the um, through the twentieth century, and a falcon flies is the first of those. And there, there's a very different treatment of um, Great Zimbabwe. First of all, it is actually Great Zimbabwe, whereas in the Sunbird, it's a sort of fantasy version that's you know, geographically somewhere else. Um, and I think at that point, it, there's no hint. They, so his um, characters come across upon the ruins and this is before 1871 so i think um no one has no westerners have yet quote unquote discovered it um and at that point there is no question as far as i can remember in the text that this is anything other than an african kingdom that would have been created by africans well it's also worth pointing out that in his own in his autobiography in the bit you read from his autobiography it makes it the, the debate is about not about was it built by africans but which africans was it built, built by yeah Absolutely, of course, yes. I'd quite like to, to think about that and assess that a little bit. Certainly in the quote that you read, references to Gokumere culture, for example, definitely comes from archaeology and archaeological narratives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, I think that's all that we've got time for. I have to admit, when we started off doing an episode on Great Zimbabwe, um, which I'll be honest, I was mainly interested in because it was a large stone structure. Uh, I think Yost has uh, made me rethink my uh, my, my sort of uh, meg megalithic biases here uh, and really opened our eyes to the fact that, uh, that the Great Ruins are really only the tip of the iceberg and that we need to look far wider. Um, so Yost, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Yost. It's really great. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's fun. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners for joining us as well. Uh, until next time, it is goodbye from me, Tom Harper. And it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.